if you know Jesus, this is as bad as it gets right here. If you don't know Jesus, this is as good as it gets right here. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to Job 2, Job 2. Yeah, I know you're saying, you're spending an awful lot of time, Brad, just getting this thing fired up. Um, We're going to be here for some time. The lessons of Job are many and varied. It's actually an enormously rich book and, quite frankly, understudied. So the name of Job is typically it's synonymous with patience or endurance in suffering. His name probably means the persecuted one or the one who turns back, the repentant one. The last two weeks we've spent really setting the context for the events of this book. Uh, Two weeks ago we took a look at the uh, era, the geologic era that Job lived within, probably an ice age caused by the division of the one supercontinent called Pangaea, which was probably caused by a series of multiple asteroid strikes. We've got lots of asteroid strikes in the northern hemisphere. Last week we took an initial glimpse of the scenes of heaven, Uh, behind the scenes, which revealed the reasons behind the events of this book. Uh, We saw that God highlighted Job's integrity to all the angels in heaven. And of course, we also saw that Satan charged that the only reason Job served God was because God had blessed and protected him. So God gave Satan permission to attack Job. And in the space of one afternoon, we saw the fact that Job lost all his possessions And far worse, all 10 of his children died when the house that they were having a celebration in collapsed on them. Contrary to what Satan's bet with God had indicated, Job did not curse God. In fact, he worshiped God and blessed God. So Satan lost round one. But as you know, it ain't over till it's over. And today we're going to look at round two. And in your and my life, the rounds keep coming and keep coming and keep coming because Satan will be our adversary until the day we leave this place and go where he's not allowed, which will be wonderful. Heaven's coming. So let's take a look at the narrative in Job 2, beginning at verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. So this is sometime later in in the chronology of heaven. And the scene that we saw in chapter 1 is repeated with some variation in chapter 2. So the scene is pretty obvious. God is on the throne. The Father is always on the throne. 
and he delegates duties to his hierarchy of angels, and they go around the universe accomplishing his purposes and managing his universe. And apparently, angels regularly come into the throne room to report on their activities. I mean, God is the CEO, the owner, and the creator of the universe, and everyone is accountable to him, so they come and give a report of what they've been doing on the far reaches of his universe. And once again, God calls out Job. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? He is continuing to be faithful to me. He is loyal to me. He continues to serve me, even though you, Satan, took away all his possession and killed all ten of his children. He still holds fast his integrity. That's the key phrase, and that's the key issue. See, Satan had accused God, or Job, of being selfish. He said, the only reason you serve God, Job, is because of what you can get from God. Job has no integrity, according to Satan. He doesn't really love God. He just serves him for the goodies. So God allowed Satan to test Job's faith with adversity and suffering. And Job's endurance would prove that he served God because God was worthy to be worshipped. In essence, Satan was slandering God. He said, no one would serve you if you didn't bribe them with health and wealth, peace and prosperity, and all the goodies. Because you, God, yourself are not worthy to be worshipped just for who you are. You have to bribe people to be, to, to be loyal to you, which is a very serious charge, of course. So God allowed Satan to test Job because he wanted to demonstrate that God's people follow him because he is worthy to be worshipped for who he is. And Ephesians 3 seems to indicate that it was a lesson not just for Satan, but also for the demons and the angels, and all the people on planet Earth. So this word integrity is a word we're going to take a look at because it keeps showing up. It means a state of, of uni unity. It means a state of wholeness, a lack of division. Uh, it's a state of being undivided and complete without blemish. Something that's integrated is of one piece. Something that disintegrates falls apart. You know, something disintegrates and collapses. So both Job's words and Job's works conform to the character and conduct of God. So he's integrated in the sense that he is of one whole cloth. And for the Christian, Job is not our model. Jesus is our model of integrity. God is shaping us to be like Jesus in our character and conduct. That's the whole point. And just like God used trials and tribulations to shape Job into his image, God will use trials and temptations, sufferings and troubles to shape us into the image of Jesus. Romans 8, 28 and 29 tells us that. When God uses the word holds fast his integrity, it means Job has maintained his loyalty, his commitment, his fidelity to God. And what that really says is Satan thought that saving faith could be destroyed. I can put enough pressure on Job physically through his suffering that he will deny you, God, and, and disown you, renounce his loyalty to you. For the New Testament Christian, we say once saved, always saved. The reality is if saved, always saved. The perseverance of the saints, genuine faith in Christ can never be destroyed by Satan. Because our security does not lie in our strength, but Christ's finished work on our behalf. That should be comforting to us. Verse 4. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. 
However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. This next verse should terrify you. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a pot sure, that's a piece of broken pottery, to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Here's the principle. Both Satan and suffering are under God's perfect control. Both Satan and suffering are under God's perfect control. It's something we need to remember because when we look at the world today, it looks out of control. People are behaving, I don't even have the words to describe it. But God is in perfect control. So before this test, only Job's possessions and family were affected, and, and Satan is very cynical. He says, well, skin for skin. What he's saying is Job was willing to sacrifice his possessions and his children as long as you didn't touch his body, as long as you didn't touch his health, as long as you didn't touch his life. So God says, you have permission. You can afflict him with everything in your power except you don't take his life. Now that's terrifying on one level because we have no idea what kind of tools of affliction Satan has in his arsenal. It should give you comfort that Satan is on God's leash. I know sometimes you would say, well, can he shorten it up a little bit? He's got a little too much free reign here. But everything is under the control of God, including Satan. Satan cannot do anything that God does not allow him to do. So Satan, it says, afflicted Job with boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. That means he had boils on the top of his head. He had boils on the soles of his foot. There was no part of his body that was left unaffected. Just to make you really feel good about your current state of health right now, I'm going to give you a list of Job's symptoms. This is a partial list. The skin covering his entire body was affected. He itched intensely and continuously. I hate itching. I hate itching, right? His appearance changed so much that his best friends didn't recognize him. He was in acute pain. He had no appetite and he suffered dangerous weight loss. His skin became crusty and hard, which then broke open into ulcerous sores that attracted worms. Yeah. His skin oozed serum and turned black in color. Even his eyelids turned dark. This is not mascara. They'd actually turned dark. And he suffered diminished eyesight. He experienced fever and aching bones. We don't know whether it was arthritis, RA, whatever. He had severe halitosis. He had difficulty breathing, and he suffered from nightmares. And this ordeal lasted for months with no end in sight. Uh, modern medicine thinks he may have had elephantiasis or leukemia of the skin. He not only suffered physically, but he suffered socially. His skin disease made him unclean, so he was a social outcast. He could not be around people. He went from sitting in the gate of the city as a judge and a ruler to sitting in the city dump where the beggars and other social outcasts and other people with skin disorders or physical maladies went because they couldn't hang out in, in contemporary culture. Interestingly enough, in primitive cultures today, 
Missionaries will report that people with this disease can soothe their sores with ashes. They put ashes on the skin, which Job did. So his sufferings go far beyond physical pain and social pain. Verse 9 is really a low blow. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God, and die? That's kind of the direct approach. Verse 10, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? This is God's comment. And all this Job did not send with his lips. Here's the principle. Since our Heavenly Father knows exactly what we need, we should accept both prosperity and adversity from his hand. Boy, that's easy to say, isn't it? But it is so hard to practice. Since our Heavenly Father knows exactly what we need, and that's where we get into arguments with him, we should accept both prosperity, pretty easy, and adversity, extremely hard, from his hand. It's interesting that Satan took Job's children but spared Job's wife. Corinne and I were talking about that uh, last Sunday. I think Satan spared her because he planned to use her to tempt Job to curse God. After all, I mean, think about it. Satan had had remarkable success in getting to Adam through Eve. So he figured, well, this will probably work again. Remember that Abraham had listened to Sarah uh, with some disastrous consequences. So the issue here is many times Satan's attacks, they don't come through our obvious enemies. Sometimes they come through our friends. Sometimes they come through our family. Many times they come through our loved ones. Temptation can be much harder to resist when it comes from someone you love and respect and even adore, right? Satan was not obviously unaware of that. It's probably a good thing we don't know Mrs. Job's first name. Yeah, you wouldn't name your daughter after her, probably. She apparently concluded that God was not being fair. I mean, after all, Job and her had lived a very godly life. And they should be awarded, not afflicted. I mean, there is absolutely no sin in their life. Uh, she sounds pretty bitter. In her defense, you have to understand that within probably the last three or four months, they've buried all ten of their children in one afternoon. And I can't comprehend that. I, I just have no way of understanding what that means. Uh, but I could easily understand that she was not thinking straight. Grief will do that to you, I can tell you that for sure. She's lost virtually everything she valued, and now her husband is in intense suffering, and she doesn't understand why. She's not so concerned about whether Job lives or dies. She's concerned about stopping the pain. She's asking questions, but she's asking the wrong question. She's asking, how can we get out of this? In other words, how can we avoid or stop the suffering? The right question should be, what can we get out of this? What can we learn from this experience? You know, um, if you're going to pay the tuition in pain and suffering and discomfort and trials and troubles in this life, for heaven's sakes, make sure you get the education that God intended you to get. Because if you don't get the education the first round, you get to enroll in the course again and again 
And again, because Jesus, God says, I'm going to make you in the image of my son because you belong to me. And God's love is relentless. If we don't submit the first round, if we don't say, Lord, teach me, I want to learn, he says, no problem, I love you so much, I'm going to give you round two of the education process because I'm going to make you into the image of my son. I want you to be holy and loving and compassionate and merciful, and I want you to have his character and conduct. God's love will never, ever give up on you. And Mrs. Job, she wants to short-circuit that plan for them because she doesn't believe that God's good, and furthermore, she doesn't believe he has a plan. Besides, the pain price is too high to pay. So she says, you can short-circuit this process, real simple, curse God and die. Reject God, renounce your loyalty to God. I mean, he's not being fair. He's allowed this adversity to afflict you. And by the way, he's the kind of a God that would kill you anyway, so your pain will be over at least. See, her concept of God was corrupted, probably by the pain. She thought that God was being vindictive. She thought that God was a vindictive God, and if Job cursed God, God would automatically retaliate and kill him. Well, that's a very faulty concept of God. That is not the God of the Bible by any stretch. She thought God wasn't worth their loyalty. This book was written, among other things, to prove the grace and mercy of God. Fortunately, Job does not listen to her. He will not give up on his loyalty to God, nor will he say what is not true. So instead of calling her stupid, he says, you're speaking like one of the foolish women speaks. You're speaking like someone who's spiritually ignorant. You're speaking like someone who doesn't have any spiritual discernment. You're speaking like a godless woman. Now the good news, in the end, we know that she was reconciled to Job, and in the end she was reconciled to God, and God gave them another family. This woman bore 20 children. Ten the first family, ten the second family. And you think you have a complicated life with a couple of grandkids. Mm, 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 mm. Wow. It's enormously difficult to endure when those closest to you do not understand and condemn you instead of encouraging you. And many of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. You have family and friends who should be encouraging you to follow the Lord, and they are giving you absolutely spiritually foolish advice. And you're in a relationship with them, and you can't really throw them under the bus, even though it would be nice sometimes. But you can throw their advice under the bus, and don't take it. That's a difficult situation, and Job is in the middle of this, and we're going to explore this, Lord willing, in the next few weeks. Job then asks one of the more profound questions in this book. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Good question. In other words, does God owe us only what we define as good? And will, be, will we be loyal to God if he visits us with adversity that which we don't define as good? What it really asks is, are we fair-weather friends with God? You ever been to a wedding? Of course you have. And when they say for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or worse, you get the feeling that they really have no clue what's coming out of their mouth, right? You, you, I mean, we made those promises, and we had no clue what was coming out of our mouth, so we know that they probably didn't have more insight. When you say for richer or for poorer, many people only hear richer. When they say in sickness and in health, they really mean health. And when they say for better or worse, that means only better, not worse. 
because as Bill Cosby told us, it can always get worse. And you don't know what that's going to look like. But that vow in a wedding is a blank check. You sign the check and God fills in the amount, right? And it's always higher than what you thought you were going to have to pay. Well, Job finds out that it's very much higher, but he also is going to find out that he has divine help in the process. So Job's commitment to God does not depend on his circumstance. It depends on God's character. God's ways can be mysterious. Most of us do not understand a great deal about what God is up to because he hasn't revealed it all. He's revealed what we need to know, but only what we need to know. And our trust in God does not depend on understanding everything he says. See, God has enrolled Job in his Ph.D. program for faith testing. Job doesn't know that. Some of you, God's enrolled in a faith testing program right now. You're in one. And you don't know how long it's going to last. And you're scared it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it might. It might get much worse. But God is with you in all that. Actually, Job experienced seven tests so far, seven adversities. First servant came by, says, you lost your oxen, donkeys, and servants. Second servant showed up, says, we lost the sheep and all the servants except me. Third one says, we lost the camels and the servants and I alone am left. Fourth one says, all your children are dead. Fifth loss, he lost his health, the onset of physical suffering. His sixth loss was the loss of his wife. Spiritually, she opposed him. And we're going to open the book here in a couple of seconds. He got his friends. And they were loaded with criticisms and accusations and solutions for his problems. Just the kind of friends you really need. So thus far, Job has been severely tested. His loyalty has remained fast. He's demonstrated that Satan's accusations about him and about God were false. So Job has vindicated God's confidence in him. Let's go to verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends, you can put those friends in italics, heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, and they made an appointment together to come and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept, and each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Here's the principle. Sometimes the best way to comfort a suffering friend is simply being there and being quiet. I could say that in more direct ways. Sometimes the best way to comfort a suffering friend is being there and being quiet. So these friends were very likely connected with Job's business. They were scattered over much of the Saudi uh, province at that point in time, or what is today modern Saudi Arabia, the, as well as the Negev and Edom, etc., etc., modern-day Jordan. But they had traveled quite some distance to, to be with him. So remember, in that era, it took time for news to get someplace. They didn't have email, they didn't have text, they didn't have phone lines, they didn't even have landlines. I mean, it was sad. You wanted to get news to something, you got on a donkey or a camel, and you rode to the destination, which could be two, 300 miles away. So that took some time to accomplish. And then the news came back that we're going to go do this. So they had to coordinate their schedules 
in order to get to Job. And so he had probably been suffering for a matter of months before they even show up. And they probably showed up almost certainly by camel train. And their intent in coming was to sympathize and comfort him. Sympathize means to show grief, compassion. It literally means to shake the head. I get it. I'm with you, right? You're suffering. And show sympathy. Comfort means to demonstrate sorrow, to have pity, with the intent of easing someone's suffering. So Job's so disfigured by this disease that they didn't even recognize him, and they'd probably been doing business with him for decades. It says they wept over his pain. They tore their robe. When you tear your robe in ancient cultures, it's a sign of intense grief, and it literally symbolizes you have a torn heart. Your heart is broken because they're broken. And to throw dust over your head identified you with the dead because the dead were under the ground and you were under the dust. So it was a symbol that says you're identifying with the dead. Now, they did some things very, very right. Let's just say that before we get into the, the uh, analysis. They traveled a long distance to be with him. This was not a convenient trip. This took months out of their life, which means they cared about him. They sat with him, not in the Hilton, but they actually went on the ash heap. They sat on the ash heap with him. This is a city dump, right? They sat with him on the dump. For how long? 24-7 for seven days, for a week. And amazingly enough, they shut up for a week. They said nothing. That would be impossible for most of us. Oh, by the way, they sat with him for a week because a week was the usual time you spent mourning for the dead. That was what it was. It was the morning time. The man they had known formally no longer existed. Everything they thought they knew about Job had died. And out of respect, they waited him to speak first for seven days. And actually, this was the best thing they ever did for him. The power of presence and the soothing salve of silence. You know, when someone is suffering of any kind, one of the great curses we have is we often think we need to go fix it. And we need to make them feel better. And we want our friends to feel better. I mean, they're broken, they're suffering. Um, broken hearts are seldom fixed by words. Being there says, I care, the ministry of presence. Just showing up. When our son died, Chuck DeRamus came to the hospital ER and sat there for two hours and didn't say a word, just waiting for me to get done comforting everybody else so we could sit and talk. Two hours. And every time I was talking to so-and-so, Chuck was there. And every time I'd go over and comfort so-and-so, Chuck was there for two hours. His presence was incredible, just being present. Being quiet says, I'm here not to fix, I'm here to listen. I'm not here to explain your pain, I'm not here to fix your pain, I'm here to listen. In reality, Job is clueless about why he's suffering. Guess what? His three friends are clueless as well. But they're positive, they're not clueless. They absolutely are positive. They know why Job is suffering, and they are very confident about telling him what he needs to do to fix this thing. If you're trying to fix somebody, you cannot comfort them. You're trying to fix them. So they sat with him in silence for seven days, which was incredible, just the ministry of being present. 
And practically speaking, every one of you knows someone who's in the middle of heartbreak. It's just life. We are at the age and stage of life where we're starting to collect some of those heartbreaks. It's just what happens when you get older, physically, emotionally, family. Robert Louis Stevenson said, sooner or later, everyone sits down to a banquet of consequences. One of the curses of aging is you start living with consequences, good or bad. Sometimes they're lovely consequences, by the way. But we all know people that are suffering. Be there. Just show up. And you don't have to physically show up. You can be there on the phone if you can't, or FaceTime. And number two, seriously think about saying less. Just listen. By the way, they may not have a lot to say too. The people that comforted Marin and I the most when Caleb died are the people who simply said, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. And I'll be praying for you. You can't fix it with words. You just, most things in life you can't fix. You're not going to feel better quickly when you're suffering. That's us and that's our friends. Job finally gets around to speaking. Job 3.1. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was to be born and the night which said a boy is conceived. Verse 7. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Verse 10. Because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me, and why did the breast that I should suck? Verse 13, for now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then, I would have been at rest. Verse 17, there, in death, the wicked cease from raging. And there, he's talking about death, the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. Here's the principle. Persistent pain can change our perspective. Our present pain can overwhelm past memories as well as future hopes. Persistent pain can change our perspective. Our present pain can overwhelm past memories and future hope. When the pain is great enough, the only thing we think about is relief. That's it. It dominates us. See, Job's not suicidal. He's not contemplating taking his own life. He wishes that he would never have been born so we could have escaped all this pain and suffering. Pain often causes us to forget past blessings. When you're in enough pain, you are, as my friend Rob says, living in the moment, right now. What happened yesterday, it just goes away. What's going to happen tomorrow goes away. Pain dominates your present, and it can overwhelm everything. It can blind us not just to the past, but to the future. It's easy to believe when you're in enough pain that it will never, ever stop. And when you're in enough pain, it wears you out. Fighting pain is tremendously hard work. Amen? It's not an easy road. Chronic pain can be debilitating. It certainly can lead to depression. It can make you feel trapped with no way out. Job says in Job 7.2, as a slave who pants for the shade and as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages, so am I allotted months of vanity and nights of trouble are appointed me. 
When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues, and I am continually tossing until dawn. His suffering's gone on for some months. He doesn't know why it's here. He doesn't know when it's going to end. He is sleep-deprived. Have any of you ever been sleep-deprived for any length of time? Most of you are probably sleep-deprived now. You look like it. <laughs> I am sleep-deprived as well, but I'm heavily caffeinated, so I'm, I'm fooling you here for a while, right? Sleep deprivation will cause you to hallucinate. It changes your memory. You have much more difficulty remembering things. If you can't remember things, you may not be dementia. It just may be, I'm not getting enough rest. And that's a major deal. I'm telling you, shopping for a mattress is a big deal. A big, big, big deal. You want something that you can try and sleep on, right? So Job is in despair. He's probably not even in his right mind. I'm not giving him excuses. I'm saying he's not sleeping. He's exhausted. He's in pain. But he's not defiant toward God. He clearly believes that life begins at conception. He believes he was a real person inside his mother's womb. He felt, nevertheless, that he had been better off if he'd never been born. That's despair. And that's pain talking. He says, well, even if I'd have been born, I wish as I was stillborn. So my parents never would celebrate my birth. He, he simply viewed death as rest and relief from the pain of this life. And many people today do that. I've talked to people who they say with not a clue of insight when they talk about their parent in their 80s, well, at least they're in a better place than they are now. Well, maybe, maybe not. If they didn't know Jesus, they're definitely not in a better place. They're in a worse place, significantly worse. Here's the principle. I didn't write it down. If you know Jesus, this is as bad as it gets right here. If you don't know Jesus, this is as good as it gets right here. So you and I that know Jesus have hope. Because no matter how good or bad this is, it's temporary. It's temporary. The Bible teaches that the soul is immortal. Everyone lives forever. Of course, the only question is, what's the geography of your final destination? With God in heaven or separated from God in hell? Now remember, Job didn't have the, the Bible. It didn't exist. So at that point in time, people had a vague sense about life after death. They believed in, 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 in the immortal soul, but they didn't have a revelation from God about where. They didn't know anything about redemption, a Messiah, or any of that stuff. So death was seen as ending everything, and Job craves for his pain to stop, and he wishes he had never been born so he wouldn't have to endure this pain. Verse 20. Why is light given to him who suffers? And light to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but there is none, who dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice greatly. They exult when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my groaning comes at the sight of my food and my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. Here's the principle. Suffering is especially difficult when it contradicts our concept of God and how he relates to people. Suffering is especially difficult when it contradicts our concept of God and how he relates to people. So Job uses this word light. Light is a synonym for understanding. 
It's, it, it's a metaphor for insight, for understanding, for comprehension. And Job is convinced that at one time, God had put a hedge of protection around him. Satan accused God of putting a hedge of protection around him. And that hedge of protection was to keep all the evil out. Job was protected from all the bad things. Job says, now it's the other way around. God has hedged me in, and I'm in this prison, and all the good is kept away from me. So I'm now in prison with all the pain and the suffering, and I can't get out. He says, my pain is as regular as my meals. I can't get away with it. Hunger is a constant. His pain is a constant. He feels trapped by it. Four times, Job asks, why? Why did I not die at birth? Why did the knees receive me? When a baby was born, they typically put the baby on the father's knees. The father was sitting down, and they presented the baby to him and put him on the knees. He's talking about his dad accepting him as a son. Why is light or insight given to him who suffers? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? It's been said that you should never ask God questions. That is absolutely false. God welcomes questions. God welcomes conversation with his children. There are no bad questions that you can't ask God. He can handle your questions. Now, he may not give you the answer you want because he's God and you're not, right? That rhymed. It's not a question of or a sign of rebellion to ask God why. You know why we know that? Jesus did. On the cross, the most awful words, and yet the most hopeful words. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He asked the question and he knew the answer. God forsook him, made him sin, so he could accept us, given his righteousness. But he still asked the question in anguish of spirit. See, pain drives us to seek answers. Here's the problem with pain. Here's the problem with problems. We think that if we can explain why we're suffering, the pain will be more manageable. If you only tell me why, God, then I can handle it. No. As Warren Wiersbe once said, does reading the x-ray take away the pain of your broken leg? Thought that was good. See, we don't live on explanations. We live on promises. We live on God's promises. Our comfort is that Jesus said, I will be with you how long? To the end of the age. Regardless of the troubles and trials, pain and problems, I will be with you. Job seems to have some kind of a premonition here because he says, for what I fear comes upon me. Seems like he almost had a foreboding Everything was so good for so long. He's kind of looking over his shoulder going, something bad's going to happen here. This is too good. It's not going to last. And so you, you, you look at chapter 3, and Job is in depression and he's in despair. He wants to not have been born. Death is rest and relief from his pain, which opens up the, the, the real point of the book. Uh, many people believe that this book was written to, to talk about Job and his suffering and his endurance. This book tries to explain why bad things happen to good people. Actually, that's not really the foundation. The foundation of this book is God is explaining how he relates to people. 
The Bible portrays God as a God of love who gave his only son, John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his own, right? So the Bible describes God as a good God who blesses people. In Exodus 33 or 34, God says, the Lord God, merciful, compassionate, slow, gracious, just, etc., etc. Blessing means divine favor. God is a God who blesses people. He gives them divine favor. And you say, well, why would God bless people? Well, number one, it's his sovereign choice. So he blesses people simply because it's his nature to show love and divine favor and bless people. Secondly, in Scripture, God blesses those who trust and obey him, those who believe what he says and do what he says. Now, the truth of it is, most people want God's blessing. Even the pagans want God's blessing. They don't want God, but they want God's goodies, right? They don't want him telling them what to do because they don't want to be under authority or accountable, but they want God's blessings. They want peace and prosperity and health and wealth and all that other stuff. So since people want God's blessing and they can't control God's sovereign choice to bless them, they often focus on what they can control. So they say, here's the deal. I will trust and obey God because if I do that, God will bless me. That's the deal. That's the nature of my relationship with God. And as a general principle, it is true that generally speaking, life goes better for those who live according to God's word. And life goes worse for those who break God's word. See, God's universe is a moral universe. It's a moral universe. And it operates according to his rules. So if you live in accordance with God's rules, generally life works better for you than if it doesn't. It's a real small step from there to believing that if you just trust and obey God, not only will God bless you, he actually owes you blessings. That's where we stop submitting to God as sovereign, who does whatever he chooses, and we're starting to try to control how he treats us. This is the creature trying to control the creator, and that's an exercise in futility, but that's what Satan taught the human race. Now, this notion that God treats me based on how I treat him is known as the principle of retribution. And in the book of Job, virtually everyone believes that God deals with people on the basis of retribution. Retribution means compensation, payback, comeuppance, etc., etc. What you put out, you get back, and if you treat God XYZ, he owes you XYZ. So that reduces your relationship with God to a contract. God, if I do this, then you're obligated to do this. Because you said, if you obey, I'll bless. Which puts the creature in the driver's seat. When you read this book, you will find out that Satan, Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu, every single one of them, in varying degrees, assume that God's relationship with people is governed by the law of retribution. God always blesses good people and always punishes bad people here on earth. Even worse, you can measure someone's spiritual righteousness by God's blessings on them. The Pharisees bought this hook, line, and sinker. In other words, if you were healthy and wealthy and had many children and were peaceful and prosperous, it was obvious that you were spiritually right in alignment with God, and God was happy with you because you had all the physical evidence. And if you were poor or sick or something bad happened to you or your family, it was obvious that God was not happy with you and he was judging you. 
That was the mindset that they operated with. Now, Job has got a problem. He's actually, his sufferings created a spiritual crisis for him. His conscience does not convict him of any sin. God said about him twice in two chapters, there is no one like him on the earth. He's blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. I mean, that's about as good an epitaph as you can get. There is none higher in the Old Testament, right there. So Job concludes, I'm righteous. My conscience does not convict me of any sin. Therefore, God should continue to bless me and prosper me, but instead God has allowed and arranged for me to suffer. He can't understand this. That equation makes no sense for him. And it creates a crisis of faith. He no longer understands how the world works. See, much of his suffering is beyond physical. It's intellectual and spiritual. He's struggling to understand how God deals with people. What is the nature of God's relationship with people? His three friends share the philosophy that God always blesses the righteous and always punishes the sinner. And so they say, you're suffering, therefore you're sinning. And they will spend three conversation cycles. Most of this book is an attempt to prove to Job that he is a sinner because it's so obvious if he wasn't sinning, he wouldn't be suffering. Now, the Bible teaches that sometimes people do suffer because of their sin. They do. Miriam led a mutiny with her brother Aaron against Moses, Numbers 12, and God struck her with leprosy. That was a judgment for her sin. Moses prayed for her. She was healed. Sometimes God uses suffering to discipline his children or chasten them and train them in holiness. Hebrews 12, 5 to 12 talks about that. Sometimes God uses suffering to make us stronger. Paul got a thorn in the flesh, which was some physical malady. He cried out three times for God to take it away. And God said no. And finally, Paul said, God's strength is made perfect in my weakness in order that I would not puff myself up because I got a vision of the third heaven, God gave me this thorn in this flesh to keep me humble and dependent on him. Most of us, I'm sorry to say, would not walk with humility before the Lord if we had no problems. Amen? We struggle with it now because it's our sin nature to try and control things. And if all we had was peace and prosperity, which we'll get into in a little bit, it's very easy to say, who needs God? My life is working fine without him. And you know lots of your friends, they're not angry with God, they just view him as irrelevant. He's not necessary. Nothing bad has happened in their life that they feel they need any divine intervention. I mean, you know, I'm reasonably healthy. I, if not, I got a good doc. I got a good medical plan. got a good job. You know, the kids are not in jail anymore. You know, blah, 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 right? I mean, you know, we all rationalize stuff, you know? I mean, so God, in his infinite mercy, keeps us dependent on him and strengthens our faith through suffering. Now, sometimes God allows us to suffer, not because of sin, not because our faith needs strengthening. Sometimes he allows us to suffer so he can comfort us. 
for the purpose that you then can comfort somebody else with that same comfort. And you go, what do you mean? This is not all about me? You're going to let me suffer so you can comfort me so I can comfort somebody else who's suffering the same thing I did. Yeah, that would be right. Because it's not all about you. It's about what God wants to do through us. Sometimes God allows suffering, and we simply don't know why. The suffering of the innocent, in many cases, is inscrutable. Sometimes suffering serves a heavenly purpose that we do not comprehend at the time. Job had no clue what happened in heaven in in Job 1 and 2. No idea. He was completely ignorant of that. He didn't know. We know. So we go, well, we have an idea why you're suffering. Job 1 and 2 kind of explains it. Job was clueless. When Jesus came to earth, he ran into a man who was born blind. Born blind. And the disciples said, which is an interesting frame of mind, Jesus, did this man sin or did his parents sin? Pretty tough for them to say he sinned because he was born blind. He couldn't have sinned before birth. So if he's born blind, his parents must have sinned. See, the assumption was if bad things happen, they always and only happen because of sin. Direct sin in your life or somebody's life, and God is a God who pays back sin with suffering, which is absolutely not the God of the Bible. So they assumed that, and Jesus said, no, he was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He was born blind so that I could open his eyes and demonstrate my deity to you and demonstrate my deity to him. And we're reading about that thousands of years later because opening the eyes of the blind was a supernatural event. The truth is, after death, God will, without exception, bless the godly and punish the ungodly. After this life, it is 100% correct, God will bless the godly and punish the ungodly. However, in this life, God usually, but not always, prospers the godly and punishes the ungodly. The Bible is filled with examples of righteous people who suffer. And wicked people who prosper. In this life here on earth, you can read about it. I mean, you've got emperors, you've got kings, you've got all sorts of arrogant people, and they're prospering like crazy. And you have righteous people who keep their hands clean and their hearts pure, and as Psalm 73 says, they're chastened every morning, right? That's because God has purposes for suffering far beyond personal sin. In this book, God tells us that God does not deal with people on the basis of retribution. He deals with us on the basis of grace. He deals with us on the basis of grace. God constantly is initiating favor toward undeserving people. What does Proverbs say? He reigns on the just and the unjust, right? There are wicked people that experience the benefits of freedom in this land, and there are righteous people that experience the benefits of freedom in this land, right? Both godly and godless people in this life can be prosperous, powerful, healthy, happy, have wonderful families, etc., etc. 
in this life, do not draw the conclusion that suffering is inevitably a result of personal sin. It may be, but there are many other reasons why God may allow suffering beyond that. In the life to come, absolutely, God will always bless the godly and punish the ungodly. So we're going to see, Lord willing, in the next few weeks, Job and his friends are going to try and analyze the cause of his sufferings. And they're going to try and find solutions for it, and they will fail spectacularly because their concept of God is false. The good news is, at the end of this book, God himself speaks for four chapters. And he makes it extremely clear who he is and how he operates. You don't have to worry about what God is or what he does. The core of this book, and I'm going to just tell you right up front in one short phrase, is when you know who, you don't need to know why. When you know who, you don't need to know why. At the very end of the book, Job says, I thought I knew you, but now I see you and I repent of my arrogance. And God never told him why he suffered. But he didn't need to know anymore. I talk to people and they go, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, blah, 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 why did this happen, why did it happen? You won't be doing any such thing. When you're in the presence of Almighty God and his perfect power and his brilliant light and his overwhelming love, you won't have any questions. Because all of them will be answered in who he is. I think sometimes when we ask why, it's not a bad thing to ask why, but what God will do is he'll reveal himself to us. He doesn't necessarily tell you why, because if he told you why, you'd argue with him. Well, God, if you thought, I don't agree with your thinking there at all. So what's the point of telling you why? We're a corrupt, we're fallen people. When he reveals himself to us, we understand that he is enough. Whatever suffering you're going through at this point or your friends or family, remember, our job and our calling and our privilege is very simple. Get people closer to Jesus. That's it. The closer you are to Jesus, the more perspective you will have on whatever you're going through and the more your ability to manage it and handle it and submit it to the Lord and honor him with it is. Let's review and then Marty will come and do prayer and praise. Number one, and this is critical to remember, both Satan and suffering are under God's perfect control. And when you're waking up at 2 o'clock and you can't go back to sleep, that's tough to remember. But you have to remember that. They're under God's perfect control. Number two, since our Heavenly Father knows exactly what we need, we should accept both prosperity and adversity from his hand. Number three, sometimes the best way to comfort a suffering friend is simply being there and being quiet. And this is a lesson Brad is in the process of learning, and I expect you are too. Number four, persistent pain can change our perspective because our present pain can overwhelm past memories and future hopes. And so Job is speaking and crying out of his despair, and we need to understand that we have many friends that come to us on that basis. Lastly, suffering is especially difficult when it con contradicts our concept of God and how he relates to people. Never forget that God is a God of grace. He operates with us on the basis of unmerited favor because he loves us. So when we don't understand his hands, the old phrase says, trust his heart. When you experience suffering, the, I think the best thing you can do 
is see your suffering through the eyes of the cross. Always look at the cross. If you doubt the love of Jesus, look at the cross. And you will not doubt his love for you or his motivation behind why he's doing it. Even if you don't understand it, you say, I can trust his heart because he died for me, that I might have eternal life. Okay, this is not um, lightweight reading. But it's profoundly important because this is the foundation upon which life is lived or not lived, and most people don't live life as God intended because they don't have a concept of God that's biblically accurate. I love you guys. Thanks for listening. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.